0: Good, very good. Sebastian Younger uh, began his two thousand and six book, or two thousand and sixteen book, Tribe. By describing a cultural problem uh, that I'd never heard about, but that bewildered the first Europeans to settle in the Americas, Uh, Benjamin Franklin puzzled over this. It was a problem that they saw and they encountered. It started in the 1600s when they first started moving into the areas, and then it ended finally in the 1800s or so. Here's the problem. Maybe you can figure out what was going on. So. When uh, Europeans first settled in the Americas and they encountered native tribes, some of those Europeans, mostly young adults, left their own cities and villages and went to live with the tribes. So there was movement from the Europeans, the New Americas, into the tribes, but there was very few, if practically none, movement from the Native American tribes into the European villages. Why was the movement only in one direction and not in both directions? It had nothing to do with the standard of living because the Europeans, even in their rustic villages, had a much higher standard of living. They were much more wealthy, much more comfortable than the native villages. So why were people moving from the uh, Europeans and Americans, why were they moving to the native Villages. What, what bothered the Europeans and the new Americans even more was the story of what would happen to captives. It was not uncommon for native tribes to uh, raid European and American outposts in an effort to capture people, mostly young women, in order to help repopu- repopulate their population. And if those uh, young women or the, the, men that, the young men that were, were captured, if they were not rescued within about a year... Most of the time, when they finally had the opportunity and the choice to return to their native villages or to stay with the Native Americans, they chose to stay rather than come back. Even with the tribes that had murdered the rest of their family, they chose to stay. Now, why? Why would that be? Why would you leave? Here's the answer. It gets a little bit more pointed. A question gets more pointed here. Why would you leave the Christian developed world the subsistent living of the hunter-gatherers. Well, here was Ben Franklin's solution. Ben Franklin's answer to that was that those who joined the tribes were drawn to their egalitarianism. European society, with its aristocracy, aristocracy inherited wealth, was hierarchical. Uh, You were born into a class, and that's where you stayed. Native leadership, on the other hand, is earned, not inherited. There weren't the wealth gaps in the tribes that marked the West. He may be onto something. Younger argues in his book that those young adults found in the tribes what they did not have in their own culture, which was this deep sense of community. Native tribes lived in small, close-knit communities. There was a sense of interdependence, a sense of usefulness, camaraderie. And in contrast to that, American villages were marked by isolation, independence, hierarchy, and a lot of people just felt useless. Uh, Younger wrote this. Uh, this is a great line from his book. Humans don't mind hardship. In fact, they thrive on it. What they mind is not feeling necessary. Modern society has perfected the art of making people not feel necessary. I think that's true? Did you know that after September 11th in Manhattan, uh, suicide rates, violent crime... And admissions to psychiatric hospitals all went down after that terrible crisis when, when the, the whole South of the Island was smoldering for months. All of those things went down. Why? Because the crisis had created a community, and the community gave this uh, that uh, the sense of people a sense of a purpose and a sense of wholeness. It it bonded them together. Now, in this isolating world, in this modern world that has perfected the art of isolating us from one another and making us feel unnecessary, we pick up the scriptures and we read about the plan of the Lord Jesus to create a new community. This new community, this church, would be marked by our common commitment to the person and work of the Lord Jesus. We believe that he's the God-man who has come to pay the penalty for our sins. That's the confession around which, the truth around which these new communities would form. These new communities would be together committed to the authority of the Lord Jesus. When we say Jesus is Lord, we're not just talking about his identity, we're talking about our creed, the creed by which we live, under his authority. And these new communities by the Lord Jesus, formed by him, would also be communities marked by love. Uh, we've been talking about all three of those things as we have been reading through the first letter that John wrote Uh, to a group of believers in and around the city of Ephesus. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to 1 John, the book of 1 John, and we're going to read from verses 11 through 18 in uh, just a minute. In the face of opposition and counterclaims and deniers and traitors, um, these are the things, their commitment to the truth, their commitment to the authority of the Lord Jesus, obeying Him, and their commitment to love would set apart the followers of the Lord Jesus. And um, today we're going to continue a discussion that we started last week. We're going to talk about love again. Last Sunday, we spent most of our time talking about the negative example from the Old Testament of Cain. Cain was a man who was bitter, envious, hateful, a murderer. God, in his kindness, reached out to Cain and and tried to draw him from the path he was on. Cain refused. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at that same passage a little bit further down in the paragraph, and we're going to talk about a positive example, which is, that's a terrible word. This is the example of all examples. This is the lesson of all lessons in what it means to love. So let's read, shall we? 1 John 3, verses 11 through 18. We're going to focus on the second half, but we'll read starting at verse 11. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain Our subject for today, of course, is love, and the message of these verses is very simple. Love bears the cost of meeting practical needs. That's what love does. Love bears the cost of meeting practical needs. And the emphasis of these verses is on the cost of love. Now, cost is not often what we think about when we think about love, but true love costs. Uh, Howard Marshall in his uh, commentary on First John said this. This is a good line. Most people associate Christianity with the command to love. And so they think they know all about Christianity when they have understand, understood its teachings in terms of their own concept of love. It's a good observation. Think about that. Most people think they know what love is and they think that Christianity is supposed to be about love. So they think they understand everything that is about Christianity and they they evaluate it on the basis of their own understanding of love. I'm not sure how you people can call yourselves Christians because you don't love people the way I think love should be. Maybe you're misunderstanding what love actually is. Love costs. We don't often think about that But it's undeniable. We're going to talk about the price that love pays this morning under two headings. First, we're going to talk about our model. And then secondly, we're going to talk about our mandate. Our model and then our mandate. First, our model. Verse 16 says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Now, think with me for just a minute about what this implies. Uh, John is implying here that without this model, we don't know what love is. This is how we know what love is. This implies that our instinctive, our natural understanding of love, might not be so accurate. Were it not for the Lord Jesus, you would be confused about love. This is how we know what love is. Now, I know you know a lot about love, right? Because you've listened to a lot of love songs. You've seen some... uh, Romantic comedies in a movie theater. You've read a Harlequin novel or two. You know what love is, right? Uh, you know, uh, based on your own experiences, when a young man or young woman first Twitter-pated your heart, you know what love is, right? Hmm. For several years in our culture, one of the most influential messages about love was delivered in a series of books and then they became movies uh, called Twilight by stephanie meyer now it's still a little dated i understand that the, the sweet spot of the cultural influence of these books was uh a little bit uh, after i grew out of that age and a little bit before my children grew into it but i have plenty of peers who've read these novels and seen the movies and read the books this is what made robert pattinson and kristen stewart famous now if you don't know who they are you would recognize their picture he's the vampire and she's forlorn So, um, I read an article a number of years ago. This is a good, good article. Twenty unfortunate lessons girls learn from Twilight. I want to read a couple of them. The books are—you don't have to read the books to recognize the truthfulness of some of these lessons. Not that they're true, but that they're taught and believed. Here we go. If a boy is aloof, standoffish ignores you, or is just plain rude, it is because he is secretly in love with you and you are the point of his existence. Secrets are good, especially life-threatening ones. It's okay... I like this one. It's okay for a potential romantic interest to be dim-witted, violent, and vengeful as long as he has great abs... If a boy tells you to stay away from him because he's dangerous and may even kill you, he must be the love of your life. You should stay with him since he will keep you safe forever. When a boy leaves you, going into shock, losing all your friends and enduring night terrors are completely acceptable occurrences as long as you keep your grades up. It is extremely romantic to put yourself in dangerous situations in order to see your ex-boyfriend again. Lying to your parents is fine. Lying to your parents while you run away to save your suicidal boyfriend is an extremely good idea that shows your strength and maturity. Car theft in the service of love is acceptable. If the boy you are in love with causes you, even indirectly, to be so beat, badly beaten up, you end up in the hospital, you should tell the doctors in your family that you fell down the steps because you are such a silly, clumsy girl. That false explanation always works well for abused women. Mm. Here's the last one I'll read. Men can be changed for the better if you sacrifice everything you are and devote yourself to their need for change. Do you know what love is? Are you getting the right message about what love is from books or magazines or movies or things you see or hear in our culture? This is how we know what love is. Let's unpack this sentence, shall we, for just a minute here. Jesus Christ, it says, laid down his life for us. That verb, let's talk about that for just a minute, laid down Um, It's a wonderful word. John is the only one who uses this word to describe what the Lord Jesus did for us, and he uses it a lot in his gospel, most particularly. John uses it literally in John chapter 13. So the night of the Last Supper, when the Lord instituted the Last Supper, he got up from the table to serve, uh, to wash the feet of the disciples. And this is how John says it. So he got up, John 13, 4, from the meal, took off, that's the word, laid down, if you have an ESV or a New American Standard, it says laid aside. So he got up from his meal, he took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his ra- waist. John used the phrase laid down a lot to talk about the good shepherd, uh, John ten eleven. I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John 10, 15, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And then he used that same word again in John 15, 12. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay one down one's life for one's friends. Now the emphasis of this verb, lay down, is the fact that Jesus went to the cross voluntarily. He died voluntarily. He was not killed by overwhelming forces that were outside of his control. No one took his life from him. He laid his life down. James Dunn, the poet, uh, the Reformation poet, uh, he was also a preacher, he said, of the Lord Jesus, his soul did not leave his body by force, but because he would, he he willed it to be so. He, He would, and when he would, Uh, Because he would, and when he would, and how he would. Christ did not not die naturally, nor violently, as all others do, but only voluntarily. He laid down his life. The text says he laid down his life for us. Here's the reason why the Lord Jesus laid down his life for us. Now, in this passage, John is using the death of the Lord Jesus as an example, but his death was not merely an example. It was purposeful. It was for us. Bible scholars over the years have argued about the significance and the meaning of the death of the Lord Jesus. Some people have argued that the main point of the death of the Lord Jesus is to demonstrate God's love. Look at how much God loves us. Jesus died. Or they say it's an example Uh, Some sort of demonstration, some sort of example that that minimizes any sort of justice or substitution in his death. That's really strange. Not a very well thought out idea. James Denny is a British Bible scholar and he says, Imagine that I was sitting on a pier enjoying the ocean breeze in the air. And someone came up to me and said, James, I love you. Let me show you how much. And throws himself into the ocean where he, dies and where he drowns and dies. James then said, I will not be impressed by that. I, that love will have no meaning. I might desperately need love, but that person's death has no relationship to what I actually need. But, he said, if I were to fall into the ocean from that pier... And you jumped in to save me, and you rescued me, but I and you rescued me, but you died. Then I come out of the water saying, Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Your sacrifice meets my need, and that's love. Jesus laid down his life for us to meet our greatest need. Some people think that John is thinking of Isaiah 53 here. Look what it says. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, the Lord Jesus, and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, there's that key word for us is death, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. The Lord made his life an offering for sin. He laid down his life for us. He died to meet our greatest need. He rescued us from the wrath of God. God who had made us to enjoy a perfect relationship with us, with Him and He placed us in this perfect world, but we rebelled against Him. Someday God is going to fix completely the world that we have broken. He's going to right every wrong and His wrath, instead of falling on us, has been accounted to the Lord Jesus on the cross. The cross is the place where Jesus' sacrifice of love and our greatest need meet. This is the most wonderful truth in all the world. There's nothing better as the theme of our music. There's no subject more worthy of our contemplation. There is no news that is greater than the fact that Christ has died for our sins. Some of you will sit down today and you'll read the newspaper, thick old Sunday paper. You will have news in it, it won't say on any page that Christ died for our sins, but that is the greatest news that has ever been announced. Oh, we invite people to believe this good news, to to trust in it, to turn to him. We remember this glad event when we partake of the Lord's Supper. Alistair McGrath said he had an aunt who was eighty when she died and she was a single woman. Uh, She never married in her life, but uh, when she was a young woman, she had a very intense romantic relationship that ended terribly. When they were cleaning out her house, they found uh, in her bedroom framed a little picture of the young man that she had been in love with. Why did she keep it all these years? Alistair McGrath says that she kept this picture in part to remind her of the love that had once been hers. So over the years, you can begin to think, was it just an illusion? Was it just a dream? Did he really care about me? And he said, she kept that picture to remind her that she had once been the object of someone's great love. He said, when we come to the Lord's Supper, it is a reminder to us these symbols, this bread that symbolizes his broken body, and this cup, the juices in this cup that reminds us of his shed blood. It's it's not a dream, it's not an illusion, it's not a legend, it's reality that the Lord Jesus has given himself up for us. It's the truth upon which we stake our eternity. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's our model, it's our motivation, really, too. Now, I want to point out just one more thing before we move on. We need to point out this, look at this. There is a popular claim about love in Christian circles that I want to talk about for just a minute. Some followers of Jesus argue, based in part on verses like this, that biblical love, that Christian love, they sometimes use the Greek word agape love, is action, not emotion. That it's action and not emotion at all. In fact, biblical love is primarily action and not really emotion at all. This is what love is. He laid down his life. Love is an act of the will, not of the heart. Sometimes I hear that in well-meaning marriage advice, usually for husbands and wives. Doesn't matter if you like your spouse, just act like you do. Right? Have you ever heard that advice? Um, Act like you love them and eventually you will. It will work. Just try it. Trust me. That emotionless, though, um, working of the will, I don't think it matches this text. I don't think that's what this text teaches. It doesn't measure up to agape biblical love. I want to show you that from the text. In a minute, well, before we do that, what's the opposite of the love he's talking about here in verse 16? It's uh, hate in verse 15. Right, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and the opposite. Then he immediately goes into love. Now, would you ever describe hate as an action and not an emotion? Would you would you ever say, you know, you might not hate people, but just act like you do, and eventually you will. It'll work. So just try it. Right. So how hate works? Hate is clearly an emotion. We would never talk about hate as just an action and not an emotion. So why would you do that with love here? And look at verse 17. We're going to get there in just a minute. But it says in verse 17, um, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, no no compassionate heart, if you have no compassion, you have no love. Because the compassionate heart is part of love. One more biblical insight. 1 Corinthians 13, 3. Paul raises the idea that you could lay down your life for someone and do it without love. That is, it's possible to do, verse 16, without love. Laying down your life is love expressed. It's not love contained. It's how we see and how we know what love is. It's how love becomes visible, but it's not the same thing as love. Now, if that's true, if it's true that, uh, that uh, this passage calls us to love one another with not just our actions but our emotions as well it means i have a bigger problem with love than i thought this text indicts me i don't have just an action problem my problem is not just in the fact that i don't want to lay down my life the problem is not just what i do or don't do it's it's what i feel too uh, the problem is that i not that i just that I don't give, but they don't have compassion or pity because without them you can't have real love. Now here we see what sin does, how, how this alienation from God, how poisonous and how ruinous it is. It manifests itself in my behavior and it breaks my heart too, breaks my will too. I pray about this for myself regularly. Do you ever pray about this for yourself? I pray that God, and and I know we have different temperaments, so we're going to experience this in different ways. I know that. But I pray that God would change my emotions too so that they would match the truth. That I would feel about things, the circumstances of my life, the way God feels about them. That I would respond with joy and sorrow and contentment and grief in exactly the way that joyful, sorrowful, and grievous circumstances should be responded to that God would change, that he would give me the strength to do loving things, and that he would change my heart so that I would feel loving things as I'm doing them. I pray that God would change that about me. Do you ever pray that way? Sin breaks us all over. And, and, and here's one of the ways that God by the Spirit changes us. So here's our model, the Lord Jesus himself. Now let's talk about our mandate, our mandate. Again, the words of this text are not hard to understand. It says, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Here's the mandate. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That wording, none of this wording is hard to understand at all. You understand every word in this sentence and you understand how they fit together. We ought to lay down our lives for each other. That's a high calling. The wording is exactly the same as Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. It's the exact same wording there. This is wording that could be part of the church covenant, but I don't think it is. But think about this. We should think about this for a minute. Here you are, you're, you're surrounded by fellow members of the congregation. You voted some of these people in as, as members. So you affirmed their belief that they're genuinely with you as a follower of the Lord Jesus. And by doing so, when you voted to welcome them, when you shook their hand and you said, Welcome, 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 you said to them, I will lay my life down for you. I will lay my life down for you. Think about that with me. Is that what you signed up for when you joined the church? It's probably mentioned in your wedding vows at some point in time. At some point in time, if the preacher who married you was worth anything, he probably read Ephesians 5 sometime, right? Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There it is. It's part of your marriage. It's part of church life. It's a high calling. Some of you, you struggle to sit in the same pew with people. You walk in, you think, ooh, there they are. I want to sit with them. The person doesn't like me. Why would I want to sit with them? They don't like me. I'll find some other places to sit. Or you struggle because they're in your growth group. <sighs> Look at this list. These people in my growth group. <sighs> right? Oh. These are the people for whom you lay down your life. Now, Knowing that even in the first century, laying down your life for someone would, not, would, would be rare. John, in verse 17, just gives us a very practical example. Uh, one, that, that one way that love manifests itself, and it does it often and easily. Um, again, the text is not hard to understand. Followers of Jesus use the resources they have to meet the needs of others. That's what he says. There's three steps in verse 17. Do you notice? Step one. If anyone has material possessions, step one. Step two, and sees a brother or sister in need. uh, That word sees, it means really looks, really knows. This is not a drive-by sighting. This is not a casual acquaintanceship. This is not uh, 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 off-the-hand, out-of-my-life type observing. This is a real, you see it. You see up close and personal. You know this brother or sister has a need. That's step two. Step three, but has no pity on them. Literally, the text says, closes your inward parts. It it, it actually talks about your intestines. Um, In this culture, your intestines were the source of your great emotions, like anger and love. They came from your bowels. Uh, We use the word heart. It sounds a lot more romantic to say, I love you with all my heart, than I love you with all my colon. It just sounds better, (laughs) right? Okay? sounds more natural, but that's literally what it says. Uh, you could say, um, the te- my translation says, has no pity. You could say, closes, closes your heart. If these three conditions are met, you have material possessions, you see your brother or sister in need, and you close your heart, here's the logical conclusion. The love of God is not in that close-hearted person. It's, it's just not there. It's the same wording that John used up in verse 15 to talk about eternal life. Eternal life does not reside in the heart of a murderer. To, to paraphrase John Stott. eternal life also does not reside in the heart of a miser. Verse 18, love is more than just words or speech, it's actions and in truth. Love costs. There is a price that is paid by love. Love gives things up to help others in need. Now let's think for a minute about how we as a church do with this. The hard part about this is not understanding the text. I spent some time thinking about this, and I made a long list. Ours is not a perfect church, but I think if this is the standard of love, that it bears the cost necessary to meet practical needs, think about this, how do we do about this? How do we do with this? Do you know how many meals are made in our church over the course of a year for somebody else, for someone who's just had a baby or someone who's sick or suffering or grieving or something like that? Um, 107 in 2018, according to our records, 107. Um, Actually, that's all that's on the official list. I know a lot of times that, that people take meals to others unofficially. That's fine. Uh, are they, you know, this person suffering. I'm just going to take something over to them. So let's say, let's just imagine 100 and uh, that's thir- let's say that happens 13 times that somebody else takes a meal over uh, off the list, off books. 120 times, once every three days, somebody in our church is feeding somebody else, somebody who's hurting, suffering, grieving. Uh, this past week, lots of you volunteered to bring food for the Millersville University wrestlers. Um, Every other month or so, every couple months, the Fellowship Committee hosts a birthday luncheon. So the goal of the birthday luncheon is for you to um, uh, get to meet other people and and, 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 uh, fellowship, interact with them. Uh, You're invited to come if it's your birthday, but you know if you show up on that Sunday and you're hungry, you can go down and eat food. Fellowship Committee wants you to go downstairs and eat food if you show up and you're hungry, right? How many rides are given in our church to those in need. To doctors, to church, to grocery stores... We have a benevolence fund. We fill it every year with money. We vote on it as a church, and then the elders chiefly have responsibility to give that money away in need. The elders are very careful. They watch the the benevolence fund. They look at the amount of money in it. But I tell them, I remind them periodically when you look at the benevolence fund, look, if there is a need, it doesn't matter how much is in the benevolence fund. If we ever got to the point where the benevolence fund had zero dollars in it, and I stood up in the church and said, there's a need, and the benevolence fund is at zero, do you know what would happen in the next couple weeks in our church in the offering, the benevolent son would be flooded with gifts. Recently, someone in the church gave me a stack of John Hur's gift, gift cards and said, please give this away to people in need. My own family, time and time again, has been the beneficiary of the generosity of this congregation. I say to my kids uh, when this happens, I say, look, somebody gave this to us in the church. Do you know why they gave this to, to us? Because they love you. They love Jesus and they love you. We care for foster children in our church. We've helped fund four or five international adoptions. People in the church have loaned cars and houses to people. We're starting this new ministry, Grace Hands, to help people with projects that they have. It's really making a ministry that's been going on by itself um, formal and official. We don't want to miss anybody, so we're starting to write things down. I know we're not perfect in this, but brothers and sisters, I think we have reasons to give thanks to God as we read this verse for how it's worked out so much in our church. There are times that you read passages of the Bible and the Holy Spirit comes along and smacks you upside the head and you say, oh, I know, it's terrible. I don't live this out at all. There are sometimes when you read the Bible and, and, and you say, wow, I, I think that God by his kindness is developing this in us. I, th- I think God is at work. In, in us to, to make this work. We love the truth in our church that Christ laid down his life for us. And one of the ways that we show it is by laying down our lives for others, feeding them, giving them rides, giving them gift cards to grocery stores, taking out air conditioning units or putting air conditioning units in. Now, I actually think that the greatest problem that we have in, this, in, in our church is in the second step in verse 17, um, seeing the needs of the brothers and sisters around. Uh, that, that's the part that I think sometimes we miss. It's hard to keep track of all these things. It's hard to observe all these things. This calls for vulnerability, calls for intimacy, calls for wisdom. It's hard sometimes to know those needs. Sam Rayburn was the Speaker of the House of Representatives for a while in the 50s, and when he was diagnosed, he was in office when he was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and he made the decision to leave Washington and go home to his uh, hometown of Bonham, Texas. And people said to him, why are you doing that? Don't you know they have the best medical facilities in Washington, D.C.? Why are you going to that little town in Texas? And Rayburn said, because in Bonham, Texas, they know if you're sick, and they care when you die. (laughs) It takes being close to people, right? Why do we give like we do? We give like we do because this is our calling as followers of Jesus Christ. It's the overflow of the love that we've received from him. Remember what Sebastian Younger said. He said, humans don't mind hardship. In fact, they thrive on it. What they mind is not feeling necessary. Modern society has perfected the art of making people not feel necessary. Let's change that saying, right? Let's change in our church. Followers of Jesus don't mind hardship. In fact, sometimes it shows us at our best. Christians have perfected the art of making people feel loved. This is how we demonstrate that we believe that Jesus Christ laid down his life for our sins. And we pick up this verse and we read it and we think about how it works out in the church. You know what I say? Good job. Let's do it even better. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are, are thankful to you. I am thankful to you for the men and women in our congregation and the work that they do that demonstrates that they believe and understand this passage of Scripture. Lord, I thank you that you work in us to work this text out in how we treat one another. Lord, I pray that this week, at least twice, maybe three times, as meals are made, that those cooks in the kitchen would feel joy and contentment as they remember the love that Christ has for us that we now demonstrate to one another. Lord, I pray that as as in our, our congregation, rides are given and phone calls are made and Things in houses are fixed. Notes are written. Giving is made. Gifts are passed out. Lord, again, fill us with joy as we think about the work of the Holy Spirit in, in drawing us to love one another. Lord, we confess we're not, not proud. We ha- haven't mastered these things. But we are thankful to you for grace. Make it so, make it so. Exalt your son and his great work in our minds and hearts so that it would drive us to love one another. Give us eyes to see those who are in need, who are slow to ask for help sometimes. Help us, bless us, fill us with joy, change our hearts so that we love one another deeply, truly, and practically. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.